Well, we are in week two of our two-week series, Serving and Receiving, very, very loosely based on pickleball. So don't get your hopes up if you think this is about pickleball. Um, I'm going to try. But uh, sorry, Stephanie, that you have to try to do that at 11. So I texted her last night. I'm really sorry about this pickleball analogy. Good luck in modern. Um, So today we're going to be looking at uh, more of Matthew 20. Last week we were kind of in the beginning. Uh, This week we're a little bit toward the end of it. So I was reading it and it made me think of a couple of statements or questions, maybe things you've said before. Um, The statement, you know, ask or you'll never know unless you ask, which is kind of a, a good mantra, especially if you're like, Maybe I should ask for a raise or a promotion, or maybe you're thinking about asking someone out on a date. You'll never know what their answer could be. You could get more Chick-fil-A sauce. If you just ask for a couple more, you'll never know unless you ask. So it's a kind of a, a good thing to keep in mind. And then there's this other one, ask for forgiveness, not permission, which is not a very, uh, good one. You probably, if you're having to say that, you probably know what you're about to do. is probably not a good decision. But in today's text, we have a couple of disciples who asked a question they probably should not have asked, and they kind of ended up needing to ask for forgiveness. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 20, verses 20, and then we're actually going to read until 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I find it interesting that James and John couldn't even ask for themselves. They had their mom ask for them, which is a whole other sermon, but we're gonna stay focused today. See, part of me thinks that they were probably a little scared, a little nervous. They probably knew that this question was maybe not great, so they put their mom up to it. Although maybe the mom was like, boys, I want to make sure that you get what you deserve, so I'm going to go ask him. Who knows? Maybe she was an over-functioning mother. We don't know. But I just think, gosh, this is a really ridiculous question to ask. And you would think as long as the disciples had been with Jesus for the last few years that maybe a lesson or two might have landed with them and they would have realized, you know, this Jesus guy doesn't seem to really like the limelight. He's really not all about glory and power and riches and fame, but it just didn't land. I think it was probably because their frontal lobe had not developed yet. If you don't, in case you didn't know, the disciples were a little bit younger, so I just think it just quite hadn't formed yet. 
But I really started to ask myself, why would they think this is an appropriate kind of question? And I had to put myself in their time, in their environment. And I think partly the reason they thought of this is because they had grown up with terrible examples of what glory and leadership and success looked like. Think about who they had grown up with, what they had witnessed, the stories that they had heard. The Romans had all the power, and they certainly, the Romans were certainly not known for taking a back seat. The Romans had bulldozed over people. They certainly did not take no for an answer. They did whatever they wanted in order to get what they wanted. They were mean, they had no grace, no patience, no sense of others take the lead. The Romans were manufactured to be the best, to be first, certainly not last. As a great theologian, Dale Earnhardt said, that's funny, y'all, come on. (laughs) Second place is first loser. Like the Romans were like, no way, we are gonna be on top. And then you had the religious leaders at the time who for a majority of the time, they, they sold out to the Romans. They pledged their allegiance to the empire rather than to God. And because they did that, they got power, they got money, they, they got protection because even the religious leaders, they didn't wanna be last or at the bottom. They needed some clout, they needed some authority, they needed some sort of safety net. And even though the disciples knew that the Romans were the bad guys and the religious leaders really had their priorities all mixed up. The Romans were still the winners and religious leaders still had power. And so I think the disciples thought at some point as we follow this Jesus dude, we're gonna get some sort of social status promotion. Surely we're gonna get elevated a little bit. So you might be able to understand why the disciples even felt like this was a totally reasonable question. Even as devout, godly men, their examples were just not good. (laughs) The all-encompassing sort of presence and constant reminder that being first, having power, stepping on those below you was the way to live. This is why the way Christ taught, the way that he, he lived was so revolutionary. It was so radically different from what they had been exposed to and which is why they had such a hard time understanding it because they had never seen it. The kingdom of God looked nothing like the world in which the disciples had grown up in and the world that they found themselves living in day in and day out but you really thought the disciples would have gotten it by now. Because we're in Matthew 20. At this point, things have been building. I mean, we're we're going toward the end. And Jesus had told them before, this is what's gonna happen. He had laid it out. This is what's gonna happen to me. Please understand this. But they heard, okay, we're gonna have a victory. We're We're gonna be on top, and yes, We know that there is victory, that that love wins in the end, all of that. But the disciples had such a different definition of what it looked like. They thought, okay, if if we're gonna win, if we're gonna have victory, we're gonna take over, we're gonna be the ones in charge, we're gonna be honored and celebrated. They had no idea 
that even after Jesus was resurrected, a lot of people would not believe that. And they would view the disciples as failures, as losers, as the last. So imagine their shock when Jesus died. They had put all their eggs in that basket for victory, and they thought, well, this, this is not how it was supposed to go. We followed you for three years thinking we were going somewhere, and now everything is gone. So this is why Jesus maybe is a little frustrated with this question because they don't get it. To be glorified, to make your life worth something means to be a servant. It means to pour yourself out. It means that your whole being, your whole self is for others and you pledge your life as a living sacrifice as our communion liturgy says. Now I do wanna say this doesn't mean that we are doormats for people that we never advocate for ourselves or we don't speak up when someone is harming. You all are smart enough to kind of know when those moments are. But this lays out this foundation that we are called to be a servant. I really think the disciples just struggled thinking that there was some sort of finish line coming, that things were going to turn around and they were gonna have that glory and power and influence and Jesus is reminding them, whoa, whoa, no. Now you're gonna take this cup that I have and it's gonna mean pouring yourselves out, it's gonna mean serving, it's gonna mean suffering. And this is a lifelong dedication. This is your vow to, to serve. We don't arrive as people of Christ. There's no quote unquote finish line where we eventually kick up our feet and call it a day and we say, well, I've done enough. Can I have my spot in glory now? Will I get a trophy for this? This is a lifelong call for us and it is not easy. When I read this passage, I know that I am called to a life of servanthood. As ordained Methodist clergy, one of our vows is to service. It's a key component to how we live out our calling as ordained pastors. But all of us, spoiler alert, are called to this life of service. It's right here in the text. And Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And if anyone has an exemption, it would have been him. And yet, what we read, what we know about Jesus, that he was always looking for ways to serve, to help, to heal, to comfort, to love, to feed people, so much more. What, how this story, I think, in my head, how it should have been read, or what I think could have happened that would have made a little bit more sense, is that the disciples would have been like fighting over, like their friends should have been at the right or left. Like, for example, if James was like, you know, Matthew, I was thinking, you do such a good job, you should be at the right hand of Jesus. And then Matthew's like, no, not me, Thomas. No, Andrew, no, I don't know. Like, if they would've been fighting over, like, no, you, you. But instead, they're all about themselves. They were looking for that glory. You know, last Sunday, I was watching my daughter, Andy, play on her unicorn sparkle soccer team. They're very intense, as you can tell by the name. Now, her team is made up entirely, pretty much, of classmates at her school. Now, the team she was playing, there was one girl from their class, and her name was Sarah. 
And the other team was pretty good. And Sarah was probably their star player. And so they're playing, it's getting kind of intense, and Sarah, from the opposite team, scores a goal. And do you want to know what, what my daughter and the other girls on her team did? They jumped up and down, and they clapped, and they hugged Sarah and celebrated her. And then I heard, because I was on the sideline next to her dad, and Sarah's dad was like, you know, she really wants the other team to, she wants her classmates to win, but she at least wanted to score a goal. But there's something about kids. Man, kids get it. This section of Matthew uh, 20, if you go back just a little bit in Matthew 19, you're, you're gonna see so much of what it means to follow Christ. Matthew 19 talks about being like children, celebrating one another, not pushing to be first, loving one another, encouraging one another. That's what I see kids being an example to us about. And then right after that is the story that you may know about the rich young man not wanting to give up his possessions. Following Christ means giving up things. And then last week we learned about um, equality and kind of equity and how everyone has a value. And today we learned that we don't live a life of service and sacrifice in order to get a reward or recognition. We serve because our Lord came to serve, not to be served. Now I know what you're thinking. I haven't mentioned pickleball at all. <clears throat> so several weeks ago, when I knew we were focusing on service, I thought, you know, I was talking to Ashley Dana, our communications director, and we're like throwing around some titles, and you know, I always try to be a little bit clever. I was like, what if we did something like pickleball, because they're serving and receiving, you know? And at that time, that seemed like a great idea. And then when I was preparing my sermon, I was like, that was a terrible idea. Why did I do that to myself? But as I was thinking, okay, how can I tie this in? So I thought about being competitive and having glory and winning. So I Googled competitive pickleball because it exists. And here are the things if you wanna be the best at pickleball. Track your rating, attend coaching clinics and workshops, hire a pickleball coach, who knew? Join a pickleball club, watch professional players, play against players better than you, play in tournaments, practice, practice, practice. Why do we have to make everything a competition? Why can't we just have fun? If you were here last week, you know that the main inventor of pickleball invented it so his family could just play together. Not to be the best, not to win, to get a trophy, to rule it over one another, to dominate, but simply to have fun, to be together, that everyone could play. I think this section of Matthew teaches us so much about how to care for one another, to live among each other, love one another, celebrate how we're called to be servant, and it's not about the glory or the recognition. So I thought, instead of living our lives asking, well, how can I win? How can I be at the top? Will I get a trophy? How can I have fame and glory and riches? Maybe you kind of realize, you know what, Lord? Take, take my life. I don't even need a trophy. <laughs> There's this wonderful covenant prayer in our Wesleyan tr tradition. Maybe you've prayed it before. I love it. I think it sums up the text today. 
And I'm going to be reading the contemporary version, but it goes like this. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, place me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. May this be our prayer today and each and every day. Amen.